Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the first season of the Newberry Tart Podcast. I am Marcy Cornell, a bookseller at a children's bookstore and a hobby collector of Newberry books. I am Jenny Law, and I am a librarian who um, is very fascinated by the Newberry books and the history surrounding them. So today we're going to talk about Solitary Blue by Cynthia Voigt. It was published in 1983 by Anthem Books. And from the Association for Library Service to Children's Newberry and Caldecott Awards, A Guide to the Medal and Honor Books. Abandoned at the age of seven by his cause-conscious mother, Jeff is left to fend for himself and take care of his absent-minded professor father. Not until Jeff is stricken with pneumonia at the age of 12 does his father understand how he, too, has deserted his son. Slowly, the two build a close, strong relationship that is able to help them survive and grow. And then um, another citation from a different guide, um, which I will have the citation for in the show notes. Jeff Green's mother left home when he was seven. She said she had work to do. There were poor people and hungry children that needed her help. Jeff and his father, the professor, lived in the void that Melody, Jeff's mother, left. Jeff came to understand he must do everything right so his father would not leave too. It was not until Jeff was 11 and he visited Melody for a summer that he realized that his idea that she loved him was wrong. Melody had a knack for using people, convincing them that she really liked them until they really need her. She was incapable of loving a real person, only those ideals she held. It is not until Jeff realizes this about his mother and withdraws from life that his father can reach out to him. It is through the pain that his mother has caused, both Jeff and his father, that they are finally able to become a family. Miss Voigt has created a convincing family portrait of a father and son. She delves into the problems men have in showing emotions and needs to each other. It is the character Brother Thomas who assists Jeff and his father in their communication of shared emotions. It is through the shared communication that Jeff learns his father is not a cold person. His father's trying to cope with the void created when Melody left. This is a non-sexist look at a father-son relationship and a different kind of single-parent family. It also presents a female character whose parenting style differs dramatically from a traditional viewpoint or perspective. This book is recommended for readers age 12 and older. I have some issues with that. (laughs) I have a lot of issues with that. But the reason why we're reading two different citations, um, in this case, and I think in the last episode, Marcy read the more recent description Mm -hmm. of the book. And this is a much more contemporary, the one I'm reading is a contemporary citation. That's interesting. I would almost have flipped those. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we have differing opinions in the the items that we read. Absolutely. However, <laughs> I think that we share the opinion that this book is not good. <laughs> yeah, it's it doesn't read like a book unto itself. Mm-hmm. And the first two-thirds or three-quarters of the book read like one story and then as soon as it hits the events that are happening in Dicey's song it completely changes and it's more of an addendum to that book Mm -hmm. so that necessarily makes the conclusion really strange and not very satisfying yeah I would definitely agree with that I think having read or listened to actually Homecoming and Dicey's song last year for the first time um Reading this was odd. 
one, the writing style I feel is extremely detached to the point where it almost reads like instructions you would get with like a bookshelf that you purchased. Mm -hmm. It's very point by point. Every detail of Jeff, what he's doing, what's happening, what the professor's doing. It's not lively text. It's not lively. It's not written in the active voice, as my beloved high school English teacher would have said. It's very sedate um, and almost numbing in parts. Well, I can see that. I can see that as a reflection of what's happening to Jeff, like the whole numbing aspect and the precision of the the point by point descriptions of what he was doing like to me served a purpose because they were talking about how he was being so meticulous and careful to just perfectly do what everybody wanted him to do like mm-hmm. he did this and then he did that and then he did this and then he did that but you're right it's not very fun to read <laughs> no and i i think that's a, an effective um an effective storytelling tool what you're talking about mm-hmm. i don't necessarily agree that that's what's going on in this story. I feel like a seven-year-old who comes home from school and is just has a letter from their mom um, that they're not coming home and that they need to keep their dad happy so he won't leave too. I feel like there are not, like a seven-year-old would not have the capability or the vocabulary or the maturity to see outside of themselves enough to get the story across in a distancing way. Yeah, that makes like, sense. Like, I, I feel like there should be more confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm saying this as a, as a kid, you know, I was, as a kid, I was very, like, very serious. You know? <laughs> but I still feel like I didn't have the faculties or the vocabulary to explain this much about what was going on well i don't know that he had the vocabulary either he just sort Mm -hmm. of i think he was on autopilot sounds like he was already used to that situation Mm -hmm. it's just that now he had to do it without his mother yeah but yeah this is more of like a like what the review referred to as a as a case study in child neglect or like a Mm. portrait of depression instead of an actual book yeah i just don't it it comes down to a lot of times there are there are books or movies that once I've read them or watched them, I'm not sure who they're, f- they're for. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't consider this suitable for a child. No, I don't think this is a, really a children's book. No. It's a companion piece to... A borderline YA book. Yeah, to Homecoming and Dicey Song. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you see his point of view for events that happened in Dicey Song. Mm-hmm. But it's not interesting... It's not compelling. And even as he gets out from underneath his mom's shadow, thumb, I'm not really sure what to call it, he doesn't liven up. He doesn't no, become no. interesting. I mean, it was interesting for me because I always like to have that backstory, like mm-hmm. that whole Rosencrantz and Guildenstern aspect. But obviously there's no comedy here. No. <laughs> well, not intentionally. No. But... Brother Thomas I found very comic. <laughs> yes. Um, and he and the professor are lovers, right? You know, I thought of that too, especially with like prolonged visits Yeah, and talking about each other's tastes and like what you should have wine glasses in your house. It's just like the whole like domestic end of things. And he was so emotionally involved with Jeff. Yeah. He seemed to treat him like a son. And the professor. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's always hard to tell because 
there's the whole bromance thing that's so mm-hmm. prevalent in any kind of pop culture. It could go either way. Yeah. But I like the ambiguity there. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was in... I'm, I'm not sure, because also when it was published, I think it was really not common to have gay characters in children's literature. No. So... I would like to. I would like to think that they actually were in a relationship, and this was a. This, Brother Thomas and the professor were actually characters that I didn't mind. Yeah. The professor, by the middle of the book, especially, like I started to really like it, him, because um, you started really paying attention to Jeff, mm-hmm. and he seemed like he was actually rising to the occasion to being a um, to being a dad. Right. Even though it didn't come naturally to him and it, it wasn't always his first instinct. I lean slightly towards the opinion that that whole implication was unintentional. But I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that yeah. option. Yeah. I'd like to think of the professor not being alone. Yeah, and to have Melody have like a more solid reason to have been so unhappy. Yeah. Although, I don't know. I, I feel like the way that she's portrayed, I don't know if there could have ever been a reason. Right. You know, she's portrayed, she is, as the reviews that you read said, she's portrayed as a monster. She's unfeeling. She's flighty in a detrimental way. Complete narcissist. Yeah, selfish. Um, Even when Jeff visits, the first time he visits, she sees, he sees her some, but... Mostly it's so that he can use his money to take her out for food. And then at the end when it's clear that she's already had like a $10,000 a year inheritance. Not inheritance, allowance. Yeah, it's even grosser. Yeah, because there's no need. Yeah, and then she's neglecting Gambo. Like she's supposed to be taking care of Gambo, but she's not. Mm -hmm. And then the second time Jeff visits, he's just like brushed aside because she wants to go and help her boyfriend photograph things like yeah, and he gets, <laughs> he gets even sketchier too like not only the weird conversation that they have together when she goes to the restroom which oh, was yeah. awful but then at the end where he like assumes that when they move to Colombia that he's going to be growing like marijuana or yeah poppies yeah I mean and she's going with this idea that she's helping little children in the in a village but we I mean we know that basically they're going down there to become drug lords right <laughs> Like, he even says that, like, obviously she's lying to herself as well. But, like, yeah. she believes herself. Or yeah. maybe she doesn't. But she's... Yeah. It's not like he has the blinders on the whole time. Like, he, he says point blank that she's a liar several times. And yeah. To, to her face. Yeah. But I almost think that she wasn't... She wasn't really b- portrayed with much depth, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But she... To me, embodies this idea of, you know, you see it, you saw it in Kramer versus Kramer, that trope that came up in this, you know, maybe late 60s, ran through the 80s of women leaving their families to find themselves. Right. And so to me, this is a complete demonization of that character. You know, whether that's right or not, I think that's a personal opinion. <laughs> like what you think about women who leave their families, that's one thing. You know, that's a personal thing you got to decide. But um, I, I think that this is a complete demonization of that figure. And there's not, for me, there's not really any wiggle room. She gets worse and worse and worse. Oh, yeah. The first thing for me, other than her leaving her seven-year-old son, um, 
with his distant father, the first clue for me that something was real bad, not right with her, like slash, um, I was not going to like this character at all was when she starts um, singing her folk songs for Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) And on page 40, you know, we have them sitting down. Jeff is visiting her in South Carolina. Um, We have them sitting down with a guitar. She's being very serious about the music she's going to play for Jeff. This is music that she's written. He is just completely taken with her because he has not seen her in years and he misses her. And then we get some, some um, snips of the song lyrics. And this is what she sings to him. Calves are easily bound and slaughtered, never knowing the reason why. But whoever treasures freedom like the swallow must learn to fly. She sang a song rather, he rather liked about a mine caving in in Nova Scotia. She played the thin strum on the guitar for that last one that she had played for the others, but Jeff could hear in the song itself how the guitar might sound beneath the melody line, how it should sound, strong and rhythmic. For all their lives they dug a grave, two miles of earth for a marking stone, two miles of earth for a marking stone. It's just so insufferable. (laughs) It's like she is definitely a character that would read the headlines and then get very upset about things that she doesn't, has not read anything else about what really bothered me in the first like thing that I had like that was when she first saw him when he came to visit her in South Carolina and he saw her for the first time and he couldn't even speak he was just overwhelmed and she kept saying things to him and trying to get him to talk and his eyes welled up and that is the first time that she smiled it was gross yeah it's (laughs) gross and she was like oh I'm glad to see you're not such a not such a man after all, or not so grown up after all. And it's just yeah. like, that's gross. Yeah. The only she, time she was yeah. happy was when he was miserable. Yeah. And she called him Jeffy. Yeah. Like she constantly was emotionally manipulating him and wanted proof that he cared about her and loved her. This is a child. Yes. Like, and that's the, one of the things that upsets me about this book is that I feel like, like in the two dicey books, Voight does an amazing job of showing how adults can do wrong by children and how that impacts the children directly. And how how strong the children can be. Yeah, and how strong, yeah, definitely. And it shows how, you know, it shows these children summoning, like, the resources that they have and how they interpret those things and, and the outcome and the effect that these behaviors have on these children, right? This is so removed, it just, it does. It reads like a case study of, like, child abuse. Yeah. Not just neglect, like abuse. Yes. And it's it's gross. And Jeff is so passive, which I think is totally a valid reaction to having a mom like that. I just, it's such a switch, and it's so removed. It just feels like maybe the wrong choice was made and how it was written. Which is funny because the writing itself, in a way, is actually very good because, mm-hmm. of course, you know, I love her writing. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like a well-written bad story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So it's, it's hard because it was engrossing. Like I got into it, like I was sitting there reading it and I was very absorbed, but it, it was just, I don't know, there was no resolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was resolution, but it wasn't anything new if you've read Dicey's Song and why would you read this if you haven't read Dicey's Song? Mm-hmm. It, it was more like extra chapters for Dicey's Song. Yeah. And it was a whole lot of backstory for us to get his perspective of the same events. Yeah. In the last, like, <laughs> It's like in Dicey's third. Song, if there had been an asterisk, he's tortured. Like, yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing that bothers me is that, and maybe I didn't notice it as much in Dicey's Song, but in this book, from his perspective, Jeff, maybe because he's supposed to be a teenage boy during this time, some of his observations are pretty sexist and upsetting. Like like assuming that the the live-in person, if she was a girl, would be better at cooking and cleaning? That, one? that <laughs> um, but that came from the professor. Well, I guess the professor chose men. Yeah. Um, and he, because he said women weren't reliable. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was upsetting. Um, but um, in the back, just as Jeff, like, describes Dicey, who, if you've read those other books, you know that Dicey is, like, a badass. Yes. Like, Dicey is, like, no-holds-bar badass. She's this little tiny dynamo. I mean, you know, we'll we'll eventually talk about Homecoming and Dicey's song, but, you know, she walks her four, her three siblings from, where was it? States. States away. Yeah, I mean, just states and states away to their grandmother's house. Where they didn't, they had just learned about the grandmother. Yeah. It's not like they ever met her or heard about her before. Her mom leaves the, Dicey and her siblings in a car in a mall parking lot. Yeah. And then she just decides like, hey, we can't stay here. Let's get going. And they walk all the way to their grandma's house. Of course, there's lots of stuff that happens in between. And there's lots of descriptions of food that remind me of like the Hobbit, you know, cause the Hobbit, <laughs> yes. like there's all those, like what they ate on the journey. Mm-hmm. And so like Dicey and her, um, her siblings, they like learn how to work the system in grocery stores. So they'll get like $2 from like cleaning a car somewhere. And then they'll go buy day old donuts and like a bag of apples. And then they'll like, <laughs> So Dicey is not do food for that book. No, no. Um, Dicey is amazing as a character, and I didn't appreciate seeing her tamped down through like Jeff's eyes. No, no. And like kind of reduced as like a little girl, which was upsetting too. Because in Dicey's song, when she meets Jeff, um, you get a very different impression of what he thinks of her, even though like she's the one observing him. Mm -hmm. Like the impression of him is totally different. Yeah. And then there's the the whole metaphor of the heron that runs through this one, which is interesting. I mean, and it's very obvious. It's it's interesting because there's some ambiguity to it, I think. But here, I'll read the first paragraph. It's on page 45 in my book where he sees a blue heron when he's on the bus. One of the small ponds came up into view. A solitary blue heron stood at its edge, half hidden in the pale marsh grass. The heron's legs were like stilts under its clumsy body. Its dusky feathers hung shaggy, ungroomed. It was perfectly motionless. 
Its long beak pointed down from ahead, both unnoble and unbeautiful. Its beak aimed down into the still, dark water. The heron occupied its own insignificant corner of the landscape in a timeless, long-legged solitude. So that's the first time that she mentions this heron, but it comes up again and again and again. Um, and it's a pretty obvious metaphor. I mean, when they move into their house that he's finally happy and he notices that this is where the heron roosts and that kind of thing. And when he finally meets Dicey, then he runs into the heron and it's not scared enough to fly away kind of a thing. But um, it's an odd... I think metaphor to use, mm-hmm. and he and Dicey both think that the heron looks like the other, or reminds them of the other. Like, yeah, which is strange. But I don't know any children that look like birds. <laughs> and there's no, I mean, I like the idea of a theme that runs through the whole book, but it doesn't seem super effective to me. Yeah, I mean, maybe in 1983, herons were like big stuff, like. Like, that was a big cultural thing? I don't think it was, though. <laughs> <laughs> the big heron trend. Yeah, the big heron trend, trend, you know? Like, um, the alligators on the Lacoste shirts. <laughs> yeah. You know, the herons. It was the Panama Jack before <laughs> before heron was, before Panama Jack was Panama Jack. Oh, my. Um, yeah, I, I don't... I think also I'm, I've gotten very used to children's books. When there are running themes, there being something that's extremely relatable. I think that this could have been more relatable. Yeah. And I mean, and again, I can see like the reflection of like, yes, he's solitary and he is kind of off to the side and supposed Mm -hmm. to be unrelatable. So maybe it's an okay metaphor in that sense, but it doesn't draw you in as a reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also, um, and I'll get into this more when we talk about um, our, with our book recommendations, but I felt like for a portrayal of a preteen and then teen boy, it felt like there was a push or a stretch to include content that a teen boy would be interested in or... Mm. Like, yay, sports, girls. Yeah, Yeah. like trying to engage on those topics, but not. it didn't feel like there was a truthfulness to it. It just felt like a passing type of thing. Yeah. Um be like i guess i have to describe this now yeah and it never felt immediate which i remember as a kid i remember feeling immediate all the time because you well one your memory's not that great and then two (laughs) like things are much bigger than you so you know especially in high school everything's so intense all the Mm -hmm. time yeah this was definitely it felt like it was written whether by a man or a woman it was definitely written by someone older looking back who didn't remember what it felt like exactly and it's trying to capture that, but giving tons of details, but not really getting the tone right. So No, I agree. And I, I also don't think that anybody could be as neglected and depressed as Jeff was during this whole book without having more negative repercussions. Like, yeah. you cannot be depressed for, what, from seven to, you can't be depressed for a decade. Yeah. And just, like, sit with it. Like, that's it's too passive. Yeah. And her, you know... Yeah, because his professor is uh, not his professor. <laughs> his father is an educated man, and he. I yeah, I just feel like he would be in treatment. Yeah, of some um, sort. Something. something would happen if you were that neglected, where your dad doesn't even know the name of your doctor after five years of your mother being gone. Mm-hmm. You know, or you're bullied, or 
you're just like that depressed and alone, like something bad is going to happen, whether you do it to yourself or it happens to you, like something is going to happen or you get yourself out of it. Yeah. And he doesn't do any of those things. Well, he, he, I guess he kind of gets out of it. Sort of toward the end, yeah. but it's just, he did, he doesn't do anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he is just floating along like a bird. <laughs> like a heron. Yeah, like a heron. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I do, I understand what you're saying. It's just so, even though I don't, I don't particularly like Jeff or. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I liked him in Dicey Song. Yeah. Our read-alikes. Yes. But um, in this case, um, when we don't necessarily like a book, <laughs> we decided to call them read-betters. Yes. So my read-betters is, is pretty simple and a little obvious here, but I would just say the rest of the Tillerman cycle, um, uh, which, of course, was written by Cynthia Voigt. Uh, Dicey Song in 1982 by Athenium um, is the, the main companion slash inspiration for this book there's also several more including homecoming and the runner um but i would recommend reading all of them in order but dicey song is just a much better version of the same events in this book from dicey's perspective i know they only meet up in the, in the last third or quarter of this book but you still get a way better perspective um and I feel like you actually get a better handle on Jeff's character. I mean, you might not have the backstory as to why he's sad sometimes, but um, what he became and what kind of a person he really is, I think, shines out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And they're much nicer to read. <laughs> yeah. Um, mine is a um, a Judy Bloom book. Um, then again, maybe I won't. It was published in 1971 by Macmillan. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for me, I picked it because, to me... This, even now, reads as a much more honest and realistic portrayal of being a boy as a, a preteen and then teen. Of course, I've I've never been a boy <laughs> that age. But when I read this, I felt like I find like I read this when I was probably 10. My mom, my mom did not know. Um <laughs> And we all snuck and read forever around that age, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, in my library, no one ever checked it out, but the copy was open to the first page that they had set. Like, you could just, like, pick the book up, and it would fall open <laughs> to the first time they have sex in forever. But then again, maybe I won't, has a lot of, like, boner content, mm-hmm. and it has a lot of, um, you know, the main character dealing with that by wearing a raincoat and putting a binder in front of him. But there's also just a lot more of an explanation of, his emotions and um, some of them are realistic. Some of them are not, but there's just to me, a lot of room for that character to be a kid and to be messed up, but to realize a path through it. And I, that, that account resonates a lot, a lot more with me than this book. So originally in this podcast, we were going to just make drinks that were based on every book. And then we realized that could be, that could be bad. Um, just because we are going to be filming them in, in batches. So um, I am a very cheap drunk. 
I'm, I'm maybe a little less though. <laughs> so, uh, but we thought we would pair it with, um, we would do food sometimes. And to me, the saddest thing, one of the saddest things in this book is on page seven, you know, Melody, Jeff's mom has just left. Just, he, you know, his father, the professor has come home. They've shared that they each read Melody's Dear John letters. And then little seven-year-old Jeffy has to cook his dad a hot dog dinner. In in a tone that suggests he's done it many times before and is not oh, yeah. at all. Yeah. And so he's, he cuts up the hot dogs and he fries them up. And then he makes sandwiches. So today we made hot dog sandwiches. They, they are not good. <laughs> what was it? I said, you said they taste. They taste the, <laughs> they taste the way the description of their house in Baltimore sounds or feels um, with the peeling paint and the kind of dinginess mm-hmm. and the. Yeah. It's, I mean, I could see how somebody could could be okay with it sort of but like as a routine thing as routine as it sounds like it is in the book it's mm-hmm. it's not ideal and to me they taste like exactly like the way a man who would sit in his study for hours <laughs> reading onion skinned like onion skin typed papers would smell oh yeah so they, <laughs> they're very <laughs> They're very professor. They're very professory to me, and they're just—they're sad. Like they're just sad. It's—it's it's what my husband would call bachelor chow. <laughs> but Jeff is like seven, I and know. we were talking about how tall an actual seven-year-old would be related to the oven. Yeah, and so like the top of the stove, we're not even sure Jeff could really reach it. So there's lots of opportunity for him to get burned in the face by the wieners. Yeah, you know, like, it's not safe. It's not delicious. No. Ugh. No, it's just, but I think it's an appropriate food for us to pair with this book. I think you're right. And well, and speaking of pairings, I have chosen also to have a glass of wine because they drink wine a lot in this book. They do. And uh, it seemed appropriate. I have, yeah. I've got a nice Viognier, which weirdly enough actually pairs decently with hot dogs, oh. as I've discovered. Um, mm. <laughs> the wine is a lot better than the hot dog sandwich. Um, but yeah. So, um, I, we will post the recipe for this. This will not be a link. Such, such this will is. be our personal recipe for it. We had to wing it. Yeah. And I realized I'd, I hadn't bought hot dogs. I don't know if I've ever bought regular hot dogs. I've bought veggie hot dogs a lot. I probably bought them for like cookouts. Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I li- I'm like an alien. Like I do not remember the last time I bought regular hot dogs. I don't either. Actually. Yeah. So, um, that yes the hot dog sandwich and on that note (laughs) yes thank you for joining us for this episode of the newberry tart podcast